today on Fuzzy Logic. We're looking at fires, bushfires and what causes them all happening at the moment around Australia. So we thought we'd have a look at the science behind it all and what's going on. So stay tuned for fires and a whole lot more today on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic here on 98.3 FM 2XX Community Radio. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. My name is Broderick, and I'm so excited to be bringing you your science on a Sunday. Uh, Joining me in the studio today is Alice. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Broad. How's it going for you today? Pretty well. Nice to have some slightly cooler weather today, I think. It it is. It is. It's nice when it cools down overnight. Makes a big difference. And uh, I think it's going to start warming up again. We've got 35s throughout the week, so it's going to be a warm one. Um, but uh, that's all right. We'll survive. We'll enjoy it while it lasts. We'll be wishing for it in a couple of months' exactly. time when it's minus five again. Exactly. We have to enjoy the heat while it's round. Um, and, yeah, we, th- as I said earlier, things will be getting hot today as we talk about the science of fire um, because, of course, Friday was the 10th anniversary of the Canberra bushfires uh, and that was commemorated beautifully by ABC. They had some uh, brilliant coverage of some of the just crazy behaviours of the fire that happened and uh, Alice has got some stuff for that later on, don't you, on uh, how crazy it really was. I do indeed. Uh, Although it was 10 years ago, scientists are still studying the things that happened in those fires back in the time, looking at different data and they've actually found that the fires may have burnt in ways that had never Ever been observed before that fire and by learning how those fires worked we can look after ourselves better next time we get one of those really really extreme fires coming through the area so we'll talk about that later today all right well for now let's kick off with this day in science today being january 20 a few interesting things happened on this day way back in 1633 Mr. Galileo. Uh, Galileo, Galileo, yeah, no, maybe. That, well, the one of the famous song, yes. <laughs> um, he actually left his home in Florence, Italy at the age of 68 and went for a little trip to Rome. Do you know why he was going to Rome, Alice? I have a feeling it might not have been in the best circumstances. Did somebody call him there and give him a bit of a rousing on for his very heretical, but as it turned out, accurate ideas about the earth and the sun and things like that? That's right. He was facing the Inquisition. In Rome, and uh, it was uh, from this day up until that's when he left home. And uh, by 22nd of June uh, of that year, he buckled under threats and interrogation by the Inquisition and eventually renounced his belief that the earth revolved around the sun, which is pretty horrible, really. It Um, must have been a pretty awful thing to have to renounce everything you believed in and your whole life's work. I wonder if he had an inkling back then that eventually he would be supported and proved right down the track or if he just felt like everything's lost, this is my moment, it's past. Well, he he must have had some knowledge, surely, because he would have trusted himself being a scientist, but it just would have been the the pressure against him, I guess, that made him eventually just give up and say no more. Um, Quite um, rightly, though, the, the Catholic Church did... Uh, reasonably recently uh, put out... Uh, they apologised to Galileo, they did. didn't they? They did, which I thought was um, very good of them, uh, considering that science has since quite clearly shown that the uh, Earth does revolve around the sun and not the other way around. So, um, yes, yeah, so a bit late, but um, they did apologise for it. 
Also on this day in science, something a bit lighter, in 1885, uh, the first US patent for a roller coasting structure was issued uh, to a gentleman called Lamarcus Thompson, who lived uh, on Coney Island in New York. Of course, of where course, else? Coney Island. And uh, that was um, where one of the first roller coasters, uh, or roller coasting structure, as it was named, uh, was first uh, opened. It was called the Gravity Pleasure Switchback Railway. And for a five-cent ticket, the passengers sat sideways in cars that then uh, descended by gravity along the gentle waves of the 600-foot wooden mini railway. Uh, it reached a top speed of it reached a top speed of six miles per hour, Woo-hoo! which in uh, in kilometres per hour is about. 10 to 12, about 10 kilometres an hour. So not that fast, but it was very popular. And it actually earned uh, back Thompson's original $1,600 investment within three weeks. Wow, that's not bad at all. I mean, you imagine, though, the first roller coaster, you'd be pretty popular. Just... Everyone would. Be on it. And lifts don't move that fast, but you can still get that lurching in your stomach from a lift. So you never know. Maybe maybe it was more thrilling than we're giving it credit for. Possibly. Well, when you're not zooming around in cars and that sort of thing back in 1885. That's true as well. Maybe yeah, 10 kilometres few... was quite quick. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, also, uh, back uh, over 100 years ago, in 1896 on this day, uh, X-rays were reported by Henry Poincaré uh, reading a letter from Wilhelm Röntgen, um, so a German scientist there who discovered X-rays, uh, sent a letter to Poincaré at the meeting of the Académie des Sciences in Paris, uh, and they viewed some of his X-ray photographs for the first time. Uh, so really interesting stuff. But I think the more interesting part of this uh, is uh, what one of the scientists did after seeing this. Uh, Henri uh, Becquerel was present and took note that the X-rays seemed to come from the phosphorescent patch on the glass tube where the cathode rays struck it. So this inspired him to study if the phosphorescence of minerals was related to X-rays. Mm. Um, so phosphorescence being the glowing colours uh, uh, that we sometimes see. Now, it's not really related to X-rays, but what Becquerel did discover by doing this experiment was he discovered the radioactivity of a uranium mineral instead. Oh. So there you go. Which has big impacts today. Do we know what sort of pictures they were taking with the X-rays to start with? What were they X-raying? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. Um, I, I don't have that information. That would be very interesting, though, whether it was uh, first... Uh, they may have just been laboratory photographs, just uh, the, the X-rays hitting film and, and, and causing colours to come up, but I, I don't know whether it was human bodies to start with or whether they were just doing stuff in the lab. Um, the one thing I do like, though, is that we call them X-rays in um, uh, English-speaking countries, but mm-hmm. in Germany it's called a Röntgen. What does that mean in the, German? Well, Röntgen is the guy that discovered them. So oh, named fair it after enough. Him. So, well, that's rather you know, nice. I know, it's much nicer. I'd much rather go to the doctors for a Röntgen. Well, x-rays <laughs> sound pretty ominous. They, they sound do. something like a superhero evil villain might be using, I don't know. Mm. Perhaps that the name gives it the wrong connotation. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just a boring name, isn't it, really? Can't, what should we call it? It's a ray of light. It's a new uh, X-ray. That'll do. I can't be bothered coming up with something creative. <laughs> that's non-specific enough. That'll that's be Exactly, fine. exactly. Um, and uh, last on this day in science, which is uh, one of my favourites, is 1930. On this day, it was the birth of American astronaut Edward Eugene Buzz 
Aldrin. Aha. Who is, of course, the second man to f- set foot on the moon. Um, I wonder if they scissors paper rock to see who would be the first and he lost. Well, according to reports, he was actually supposed to be the first. Originally, he discussed oh. it with Armstrong. But the way they were sitting in the capsule that uh, went off from the, the main rocket and descended uh, onto the moon's surface, it was just easier for Armstrong to get out first. It would have been awkward um, wiggling around in the big bulky spacesuit yeah, for him to get out first. Yeah, that's right. And Armstrong was commander of the mission, so he would have had some sort of uh, seniority. Yeah. Um, and then who was the third fellow who we always forget? Mr. Michael Collins, who didn't even get to land. He just stayed orbiting the moon up the top there. Mm-hmm. Very sad for him. Um, Still an amazing experience, oh, I'm sure. Very, but, very but to be so. the eternally forgotten third one, I'm mm. afraid. Well, of course, Buzz is always known as the second, but he was actually the first to do something on the moon. And I found this quite interesting. It's not something you'd expect to happen up on the moon. Was it something a bit silly? No, no, no. Quite, quite serious and somber, actually. Oh dear. He was the first man to hold a religious ceremony on the moon. Right. He, of what variety? He of gave himself ceremony? communion. He was a. He was a very. Um, uh, devout, devout. Thank you, a devout <laughs> Presbyterian, and uh, he decided that he wanted to perform communion on the moon. So he actually had some um, uh, wafers and a chalice from his home church uh, back in the US. Oh, wow! He'd taken them up, and uh, it was very hush hush though, because um, uh, in one of the uh, earlier missions, uh, they'd read the first chapter of Genesis on board. I think it was Apollo nine. Okay, and uh, a controversial atheist in the US had actually sued NASA. Um, because he didn't think this was appropriate. You know, I, I think it's a bit silly. But Poor old Galileo and religion not getting on and then st- years and years yeah. and years later still having they're, they're, Well, they're trying to merge them nicely in, in this case. You know, reading Genesis on board mm. the Apollo, it was a it's nice idea. Um, so it was a bit, little bit secret. But if you do go to the US at Buzz's home church, they have the chalice that he performed communion with on the moon. One way of getting kids into doing communion at the church, <laughs> going, guys, this has been to the moon. That yeah, would be fantastic. Have, have the space cup. That would be awesome. <laughs> so that's what's been happening on this day in science. Um, but, you know, that's a whole lot of old news today. There is, uh, of course, always new news happening. Oh, that's the nature of news, isn't it? It's generally <laughs> it does new. tend to be new. <laughs> but there is some interesting news coming out this week in science. And to start with, we're going to dive underwater, Alice. Indeed. Well, I thought it's the middle of summer. People like us who live in Canberra at the moment, we enjoy summer by eating apricots and if we're really, really brave, jumping in the dodgy-looking lake. But the lucky people down on the coast, they get to go swimming in the ocean, which is great fun. I'm a huge fan of the ocean, but you do sometimes have to take your chances with some less than friendly creatures. And our news today is about one of the better-known venomous underwater animals, the box jellyfish, which, depending on your way of defining venomous, is, is often considered the most venomous animal in the world. And although we have an anti-venom for box jellyfish stings, it doesn't always work very well. And that's because, up until now, scientists haven't been able to pinpoint the exact mechanism by which uh, box jellyfish venom works. They know that it makes your heart stop eventually, but only very, very recently have they figured out exactly how it makes your heart stop. Oh, that's interesting. Which one's the box jellyfish? The box jellyfish are, well, a full-grown box jellyfish is quite big. It's bell, so the head bit, for want of a better word, can be the size of a basketball. Right. And it's got about 60 tentacles that come off. uh, It's roughly box-shaped or cube-shaped. Okay. 60 tentacles that come off the corners of the box. Right. They can be about three metres long. They live in tropical waters. So sort of roughly from Gladstone north, 
right okay, around through, through to through Queensland, across the territory, and through to I think it's Exmouth in WA. Oh. Roughly the top half of Australia, okay. if you think about it that way. Okay. Uh, they're Coronex Fleckii for those who are scientifically <laughs> orientated, but I'm not, so they're box jellyfish. Technically not a jellyfish, but we won't get into that right now. Uh, But they sting and they really, really hurt when they sting. Uh, And it turns out that scientists have just recently discovered that the reason that the box jellyfish sting uh, stops you being able to breathe is that there's an agent in the venom called porion, which creates tiny holes in your red blood vessel and allows the potassium to leak out of the blood vessels. And when you're plasma potassium gets too high, there's a mouthful, uh, your heart can't beat. So you end up having heart failure if you're given a bad enough sting from one of these box jellyfish. But what they also discovered is that if you, if, and they did these tests on mice, not people, so we're still learning (laughs) this sort of thing. But for mice at least, if they're given a dose of zinc gluconate, not very good at saying that, but a a dose of zinc, it stops the potassium leaking out. uh, And it's considered a better treatment in some ways than the antivenom, particularly for severe box jellyfish stings. Yeah. I I mean, that's interesting because... Zinc. Now I'm just trying to remember my periodic table here, because um, uh, zinc zinc isn't close to potassium on the periodic table. I don't think. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering whether it's reacting in this in a similar way, or or what's going on there. But I mean, I'm not really sure whether whether it interferes with these little holes being put in the cells, yeah. or whether something else is happening. But it looks like it's more effective than the current antivenoms that are being used. We wouldn't necessarily stop using the antivenoms, but we may in the future use a combination of this zinc treatment and the antivenoms. Uh, now, do you know, Broad, quick pop quiz for you, which is a bit mean considering you're from Adelaide where these animals don't live, yeah. but do you know what the first aid for a box jellyfish sting is? I, I think, to be honest, oh, now, I, now, I was going to say you're wee on it, but I think that's, that's generally the consensus, just anything that stings you in the wild, you're wee on it. <laughs> but I have a feeling that... Um, you are supposed to put vinegar on it. Well done. Yes, you are supposed to put vinegar <laughs> on cubozoa jellyfish. So that would be box jellyfish and irukandjis, which are the little tiny mini box jellyfish yeah. that sting in a different way. Uh, and that's fine. It's a really good, easy, easy material to find, and it doesn't fix the sting. It doesn't stop the venom, but it stops any more of the little stinging capsules going off. Ah. So it stops the sting getting worse. But there's a problem with vinegar. What's that? It tastes really good on fish and ships. It does. And people on the beach often eat fish and ships. So local councils up north uh, started a program of uh, having little boxes of vinegar along the beach for people to use if they were stung for first aid. Uh, But it was all going wrong because people nicked the vinegar, (laughs) put it on their fish and ships, and then when someone was stung, there was no vinegar until someone came up with a very clever and very simple idea to stop people nicking the vinegar for their food. What's that? They dyed it bright blue or bright red <laughs> because fish and chips that are blue look a bit off. So yeah. now if you go swimming up in Cairns or Townsville or Darwin, you'll find these boxes with blue or red vinegar in them for treating box jellyfish stings. Right. And if you see anyone with blue fish and chips, you can uh, stare, stare at them and, and tell tut, them tut, off. Tut, yeah, exactly. That's right. Ah, oh, very good. Well, that's mm. really interesting. Well, actually, speaking of vinegar, we do have an experiment with vinegar today um, that we'll have a listen to later on. Um, so you can try your own little vinegar experiment, although I promise it's not for getting rid of box jellyfish stings. It's much nicer than that, so <laughs> you can do that. But while we're in the ocean, um, 
Let's move from jellyfish to barnacles. One of my favourite animals. They are. They're pretty cool barnacles. And... um, this uh, a new study out, actually from the University of Alberta in Canada, um, is looking at the way barnacles have sex. And Kids, close your ears for a I minute. Know. Go, go have some Milo and come back in two minutes. Well, it's 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 all very scientific. It, it here is. Because, it's okay because barnacles are well known um, amongst scientists as uh, having the largest penises relative to their body size. And in fact, Alice, I know you're a marine expert. If uh, a barnacle was human-sized. How long would its penis be? Approximately 50 metres long. That's just... The length of a long swimming pool. That's an Olympic swimming pool. Yep. Jeez. So don't 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 go feeling un- underwhelmed, gentlemen in the audience. That's just for barnacles. <laughs> just for barnacles. That's just huge. I mean, and barnacles are pretty small, but... Um, the on a, on a barnacle itself, how long is the penis? Oh, let me think. I think between sort of fifteen and twenty centimeters yeah. long would be a pretty respectable size That's barnacle's right. penis. Pretty, pretty huge, still. I mean, considering how tiny barnacles are, you know, those little things that stick to the side of boats and that sort of thing. They're long for a good reason, though. Well, Humans the, don't need long penises because we can walk around and meet lovely ladies. Uh, but true. all barnacles are stuck in the wrong place. So they have to be able to reach over and find some nice ladies to, right. to fertilise and make once babies the, with. Once they attach to somewhere, they're just stuck there. Um, and, and so they can't move around. And if they want to reproduce, Correct. they need to reach around. Well, the, the interesting thing is that um, there's actually another system that helps them when they're stuck in one spot that they've recently discovered. And this is the fact that they can capture sperm directly from water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a lady's obviously capturing the sperm. The ladies, yeah. but to complicate things, they can sometimes be both girls and the oh, boys and girls can, at the same they? time. Yeah. But never mind, just yes. sure the lady bits at the any lady. rate. Yes. And and so uh, this shoot and catch system is a first for crustaceans, which were previously, they thought they all copulated in some sort of fashion. Um, but now scientists know that the process is... A little less intimate for barnacles. Disappointing. Um, Not so romantic for the barnacles. Yeah, so what they do is uh, the scientists actually used uh, observational chemical analysis and had a look at uh, barnacles and confirmed that a high percentage of eggs were fertilised with sperm that was captured from the water. Um, In fact, sperm capture occurred in 100% of isolated individuals they had, and even in a quarter of them that had a partner right next to them. Ah, so for those barnacles that are lucky enough to have a neighbour close by, they can either catch the sperm or have a bit of a wiggly, roundy sort of an affair. If you're further away, you can catch the sperm out of the water. How clever. Yeah, so crazy. So, I mean, the interesting thing is, and I love this little comparison I've got here, for humans, it would be kind of like trying to get pregnant by hugging in a hot tub. Well, with other potential mates present, but without actually having sex. So there you go. <laughs> I don't think that's the way we want to do it as humans, but it's certainly interesting for barnacles who can't move about. Um, for humans, I suppose it's just good encouragement to get out there and try and meet people. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Maybe don't try that as a pickup line, though. No. As, no. A, as, a, as a person with a background in marine biology, um, I've found that talking about uh, strange animal sex tends not to turn on other people. It's a bit disappointing. Unless yeah. you find another fish nerd and then it's first love at first sight and it's beautiful. That's right. That's right. Very, very Maybe leave those discussions till the second or third date. All right. Good advice there, Alice. <laughs> right, well, let's move out of the ocean now and into... Uh, the classroom, perhaps, the classroom. if we're going back Sounds to school good. soon. Yeah. 
Well, we have one other little... Oh, no, we've got a couple of quick news stories. This is a particularly short news story, but a relevant one for those people who are going back to schools or all those teachers who are on school holidays at the moment and maybe doing some marking or preparing for some marking next year. Uh, we often have a classic image in our head of a stern-looking teacher frowning as she crosses out and scribbles on and annotates an assignment in bright red pen. And I certainly got plenty of assignments back with plenty of red pen when I was at school. I don't know about you, Broderick. Oh, uh, yeah, that was most of the teachers marked in red pen. Although I did have a very... Um, uh, my maths teacher, he'd always mark in green. Um, and then, because we'd, we'd use red and blue pens for most of our maths work ah. and annotate it, and so he'd mark in green. And then he got really cross with one of the students because he also used green on his test. And he said, so then I had to go and find another coloured pen to mark purple it in. Purple or something. He, he did go to purple, <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, so he was he was a bit different. But, yeah, most of them were covered in red. Mm. And how did that red make you feel? Um, oh, I, I can't remember anything too, too much either way, to be honest. I mean, if, if it was, well, if it was good marks, it was fine. If it was bad marks, I'd get annoyed, you know. Indeed. <laughs> I, I would usually feel uh, concerned if there was lots of writing rather than yes, none. Yes, that's true. But apparently a new study out, uh, just in this last week shows that maybe teachers should rethink marking assignments in red pen, uh, because it turns out that students who see, uh, their writing returned to them in red pen tend to generate worse perceptions of their teachers and tend to take feedback from their teachers less constructively. <laughs> red is apparently, uh, it's, it's a very emotive colour mm. and the students reported that it was a bit like being shouted at and they'd end up with worse relationship with, relationships with their teachers and less likely to take feedback from their teachers constructively, whereas if teachers mark in, an, say, an aqua-coloured pen, uh, then their points of criticism would still be gotten across to the students but in a less emotive way. So it's, it's kind of like writing in all caps when, yes. you, when you text her on the computer. It's just like shouting. Oh, and my... So Using red pen is like shouting. Very much so. Yeah. My silly grandmother who got a mobile phone and learnt to text, God bless her, which was great, only text in capital letters. So get, <laughs> Happy birthday! I hope you're having a good day. And it feels horrible. <laughs> and we tried to explain, look, Nan, this is this is like shouting. You can't do it. And she refused to listen. So we get lovely shouty birthday messages. But yeah, the tip from the scientists is perhaps that they should be writing in aqua pen. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's political correctness gone mad or if, if maybe they've got a point. Yeah, I don't know. I... I um when I uh, started my work at the ANU uh, lecturing and I got to mark my first assignments and I actually went out and bought a red pen just for marking because <laughs> maybe maybe it was in the back of my mind though I just wanted to get back at these students as my teachers had got me with the red pen and so I was determined to um to to write in red and be a teacher. Maybe we could do some informal experimenting this year. You could mark some in blue and some in red and see <laughs> at the end of the year whether some of your students like you more than others. Oh, we that, could would see. Be, that would be an interesting study. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it would be a very interesting study, and I do like it when scientists do different sorts of studies. The, the red pen one kind of has some merit to it, but there's an interesting study uh, that has come from uh, some scientists at the University of Leicester. Um, And uh, it was actually published in the Journal of Physics Special Topics. And it's a study looking at travelling in hyperspace. And uh, 
look, not so much actually whether we can travel into hyperspace or jump into hyperspace, rather, uh, but what would actually happen if we did? Because uh, it's probably uh, most well known from the Star Wars movie when the Millennium Falcon jumps into hyperspace and you see these uh, stars suddenly turn into lines radiating out ah. from the centre. And, uh, you know, it's a amazing streaking past the ship and, you know, Watching it, it looks like, okay, you must be going fast now because all the stars have turned into lines. So that's the idea of hyperspace. For those of, of our listeners who might not be so into Star Wars, it, it means that you're moving through space really quickly. Is that what hyperspace that, that's is? That's right. Okay, so jumping cool. super, super fast. Um, and, uh, and it's represented in the movies by these lo- stars turning into mm. lines. But... Like a lot of things in sci-fi movies... Don't tell me it's not exactly 100% true. not quite true, I'm afraid, Alice. Uh, You know, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia wouldn't see these stars turning into lines. In fact, they probably wouldn't see the stars at all. And it's all due to the Doppler effect. Ah, good old red shift and blue shift, that sort of thing? Yeah, that's right. Well, the Doppler effect is uh, the phenomenon by which wavelengths shorten or lengthen uh, depending on whether the source of uh, these uh, waves is nearing or moving away from the person who's looking at it. So the big example that we often hear in the street is uh, when uh, the siren of a, a ambulance comes past and it changes pitch as it um, comes towards you and then goes away from you. Mm. Um, sort of getting the sound waves, sort of getting squished as they're moving, as the thing, the, the car in this case is moving towards you and then stretched out as they're moving away, that's roughly? Right. Yeah, yes. that, that's roughly it. And uh, so what it means in terms of the uh, millennium Millennium Falcon going into hyperspace is that as it starts speeding towards the stars, the wavelength of the, the stellar light would shorten which means it would actually move out of the visible part of uh, the light spectrum. So not just become red, but go further again go to further being again, visible. And it would actually go into the X-ray range, according to these students' calculations. But interestingly, on the other hand, cosmic microwave background radiation, which is... The, the stuff le- on television, when nothing in particular is on television... Uh, no, oh, no. In this case, the, no. the 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 leftovers of radiation from the, oh, the big actual bang, stuff, not the, the actual, stuff we can see on television. Fair yeah, enough. no, no. The actual cosmic microwave background radiation uh, from the big bang, fourteen billion years ago. That sort of stuff that's just sitting around would actually lengthen in wavelength, and it would suddenly become visible to people. As and what would um, it look like? Well, it would look like a central disk of brilliant light. So it would actually look like you know a giant sun or something like that, just suddenly this bright light coming towards you. So the recommendation from these scientists is that if you are travelling in the Millennium Falcon, wear some sunglasses. Look, I think that's a fair enough recommendation. I'll keep that in mind next time I see (laughs) Princess Leia and she asks if I want to go for a spin. Definitely, definitely. Keep it in your head and uh, you'll be fine. It's 12.02. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX Community Radio. And uh, today we are talking about fire. And the reason being is there's been a lot of bushfires burning around Australia as we've come into the new year, which has been not really out of the ordinary, I suppose, because we are getting used to more and more fires happening around the country. But they have been pretty intense this year. And uh, one of the biggest recent fires was a bushfire out near Coonabarabran in New South Wales. Uh, now, if, in terms of uh, science, it got very close to the Signing Spring Observatory, which is the um, 
the observatory run by the Australian National University, the Australian Astronomical Observatory, which kind of took over as the uh, biggest observatory in Australia when Stromlo burnt down in the Canberra bushfires 10 years ago. Not having much luck with, astronom- with astronomy and burning down, are we? No, no. Luckily um, for the scientists, though, the, they actually took a lot of the lessons they learnt from uh, the Australian Astronomical Observatory, um, sorry, from Mount, Mount Stromlo, and applied it to the Australia Astronomical Observatory at Siding Springs. And, you know, simple lessons such as... Um, a lot of undergrowth clearing and fitting ember screens to all the windows of the buildings on the observatory. So that means that embers that got inside in Stromlo to burn down a lot of that place um, were protected at Siding Springs. And so in terms of the facilities at the moment at Siding Springs, uh, the damage done was quite minimal, um, which was uh, quite really good to hear Mm. um, because, you know, um, there were a few... uh, Houses lost in that area, um, and uh, the ANU is working with them now. Uh, but uh, the the uh, the Anglo-Australian Telescope, which is the largest telescope in Australia, um, was luckily quite real, well protected, and uh, so we've we've uh, managed to avoid uh, huge huge damages to the observatory, which is good in a way that it can survive this because. Um, you know, obviously the observatory needs to be somewhere where there's not much light around um, so that they can observe the stars as best they can. Indeed. So, so it's going to be away from big townships, but that more often than not means it's probably going to be in bushland. Um, so they've certainly learnt their lessons. Uh, do, do we know if they're ever going to rebuild the Mount Stromlo observatory or is it just going to stay as a, as a sort of half-burnt-down place that's nice for weddings and other sorts I, of things differently now? I think it's just going to stay as, a, as, as the place that it is at the moment. Um, they've certainly uh, reconstructed a bit of it up there um, and uh, I went with Fuzzy Logic actually broadcast from the open day at the end of uh, 2011, it was, um, and a fantastic uh, place up there to be and they had some amazing stuff going on. So there is still astronomy happening up there, just not to the same degree that it was uh, because the decision was made after the Canberra bushfires that the, the main hub of astronomy in Australia would be Siding Springs. Mm. Um, and so that's that's where everything is now. So at the moment, uh, they're just happy that the telescopes operating at Siding Springs are all okay. Um, it was really interesting for them, actually, because they had to evacuate from the area. But, of course, uh, a lot of those telescopes are, are able to be controlled remotely. Mm. Um, and to do that, they have a lot of sensors. And one of those is temperature sensors. Ooh, so the scientists got to sit there watching the temperatures go up and up and up, you know, 50, 60, 70 degrees Celsius. And, uh, you know, just sitting there going, oh, my gosh, like that would just be very worrying for me if that was my telescope sitting your out there. Your livelihood, your thing you've worked with for the last 20 that's years. Right. That's right. So they were very lucky um, up there. And, uh, you know, it was a, a, a fire that just sort of popped out of nowhere through the Warrumbungle National Park there into Siding Springs. But luckily, thanks to um, some pre-planning from the Stromlo bushfires and some great work by the Rural Fire Service, um, through that region, um, able to avoid a lot of a lot of damage um, mm. out there. Um, but yeah, it does get us thinking about the Canberra bushfires. Uh, we celebrated the well, we didn't really celebrate. We commemorated we the tenth uh, anniversary of those on Friday. Um, 
in uh, slightly eerie circumstances, I guess, with the weather uh, being quite similar on Friday to what it was back 10 years ago when the bushfires did come through uh, with the hot temperatures and high winds. Uh, but luckily everyone stayed safe this year. Um, but the 10 years ago bushfires were some of the uh, most intense bushfires that have been seen and did some pretty strange things. And uh, Alice, you've been following the research that's been happening on these fires and, and what scientists are actually learning from them. I have indeed, and it's really interesting. As much as it was 10 years ago, obviously the 18th of January 2003, as many Canberra residents will remember, scientists are still learning things from the records that they obtained and the images that they took uh, from satellites and also on the ground from those fires. And it turns out that uh, although in some ways fire is really simple, you need three things to make a fire, oxygen, heat and fuel, the behaviour of bushfires is really, really complex in different landscapes and it's something that we still don't understand very well, particularly in rugged areas and, and areas with hills and valleys and, and different topography. Uh, and what the scientists have been doing is analysing data from the fires 10 years ago and they think that they've discovered basically a new type of fire. The fires that burned 10 years ago in the hills behind Canberra actually burnt in a way that was completely different to the way that fire scientists up until now have predicted that fires work. Because yeah. there is a lot that can change the, the way a fire burns, I guess. Um, you know, the, the undergrowth and that sort of thing. I know I saw some fires through the Northern Territory um, and at the top of WA uh, in the Kimberley region when I've been visiting through there. And uh, those fires, you know, they're actually occurring in the middle of the year because mm. that's the fire season through that, that part of Australia. Um, and they were, they were very different fires. They were low fires. There was just lots of scrub burning. Um, they weren't they were warm, but they weren't intensely hot. We were actually able to walk up to the fire line yes. at some points and just kind of follow it and walk along with it, um, which is probably something you would never do um, with some of the bushfires that come through the eastern side of Australia. No, and something that you do still have to be careful with up in the tropics are, as you say, often fires that burn in the scrub up north are quite low, low energy, low heat fires in the native vegetation. Some vegetation like spinifex is renowned for burning even when it rains, so it does burn very well. Mm. but not necessarily very hot. But the introduction of plants from other countries, especially a plant called buffle grass, that's uh -huh. now become a huge weed in the top half of Australia and grows to be as tall as you are, Brod, which is probably slightly taller than your average bloke. Yeah. So, you know, close to two metres tall, and it burns incredibly hot uh -huh. and incredibly well, and it's changing fire regimes in northern Australia really dramatically. But, yes, as you say, so vegetation type can affect the way that fires burn, weather, wind direction, wind speed, temperature, but also the shape of the land, so whether you've got hills, whether you've got valleys, um, and the steep of the hills and valleys. So generally, the way that fire scientists think about fire is that fire tends to spread fast upslope, which okay. makes... It initially kind of sounds weird. You think of us running and it's harder to <laughs> it's run upslope up than the downhill. Mm. But for fires, it makes sense because hot air rises. So as you've got a fire down the bottom of the hill, the yeah. hot air rises, it warms up the grass higher up the hill and so the fire can spread so up So it's here. sort of pre-preparing as it yeah, gets Yeah, exactly. Up there. It's preheating, yeah. it's getting ready, the grass and the trees above up the hill for the fire to move up. So okay. usually we think fires move quickly uphill and they move quickly forward in the direction that the wind's pushing them. That makes sense. Both yeah. of those things with a little bit of thought make total sense. But that's not the way the fires behaved in the bushfires 10 years ago near Canberra, mm -hmm. as it turned out. They... they 
uh, behave quite differently because of this phenomena that the scientists have just started describing called fire channeling. And what that involves is it involves the fire spreading really quickly downhill on the lee slope, so on the slopes that are protected from the wind, which seems really counterintuitive. Yeah, that does, because there's no preheating there. Exactly. And it's away from the wind. And it's away from the wind. Could it be something like it's taking the path of least resistance? or Not exactly. No? What the scientists think is happening is that roughly the best way to explain it without having pictures to draw, unfortunately, <laughs> is that you end up with these moving, cycling swirling bits of air that are a little bit like... I'm trying to think of the best way to describe them. Uh, They're a little bit like rotor blades. So you end up with swirling, whirling masses of air being trapped on the lee side. Okay. Okay, so just these rolling air just sitting there. Rolling air sitting there rolling. Okay. Uh, And the other thing that happens with this air becoming really, really turbulent is it increases the production of embers. Ah. So not only do you end up with fire spreading quickly in places where we wouldn't usually expect it to spread, Mm. but we end up with embers that spread a lot further than they usually would because of the way the air has been moving around in a really turbulent and not necessarily easily predictable fashion. And so this means that we end up with a swarm of embers moving forward and we end up with fires moving in directions that we wouldn't usually have predicted, which is really dangerous for firefighters. Yeah. But also really dangerous for people living in regions if we're trying to predict where is it safe to stay in your homes, where should you move, where and when should you move. It makes it really difficult for those predictions to happen. So these scientists, by understanding this fire channeling phenomena, are going to be able to predict the way that fires move in hilled country better in the future, which in the long run is going to help keep people safe. Yeah, that's really uh, interesting work there. Yes, because, yeah, and the embers being so dangerous too because that's often um, the the worst part of the fire is that the embers can often cause a lot of damage. You know, the fire front can pass through a region pretty well, but it's the little embers that kind of hang around and stick around and Get light. stuck in gutters. And... That's right, and, and, and cause the big fires, um, which is why when people uh, make the decision to stay home and fight, if they can brace themselves for the fire front, then they can put out all the ember fires that follow mm. after that. Um which is really interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, fire research is something that Australians have been doing for quite a long time because it does affect our country so greatly. Um, and uh, CSIRO has uh, been researching it, um, doing, leading a lot of the research, as it would be, being our Makes nation's sense. research organisation. And uh, the... Um, one of the things we often hear when talking about fires is the uh, fire danger index, um, which is when we hear things like catastrophic, extreme, severe fire days, those sorts of things. And um, it was actually developed by a scientist called A.G. MacArthur uh, back in the 1960s at CSIRO. And um, he uh, looked at the degree of danger of fire in Australian forests. Uh, so that was where he was uh, trying to concentrate his thoughts. And uh, he pre- He worked uh, with uh, some other um, mathematicians, actually, um, and looked at a range of uh, different variables uh, to help determine uh, when it's going to be a dangerous fire day. Mm. Uh, The variables he looked at included a record of dryness, so it's basically looking at when it last rained in the area. And that makes sense. and, And how much it rained and evaporation. Also looking at humidity in the air, uh, wind speed, uh, and temperature on the day too. And by taking all these values into account uh, through, the diff- through their algorithm, uh, they get a value uh, out of 
well, it's not out of 100, um, but it, it, it ranges from 0 to 100 plus um, to give us our fire danger rating. Um, and so these ratings originally came in uh, low, high, very high, and uh, uh, extreme. Uh, no, yeah, uh, but severe, then- sorry. But then it changed back in 2010 after the... Um, uh, Devastating the, bushfires in Victoria. That's right. The Black Friday through there, and so uh, severe, which was uh, originally um, a, a value of fifty plus, uh, has now been divided up, and so severe is fifty to seventy four. We have extreme seventy five to ninety nine, and a hundred plus is catastrophic. Um, and we're actually seeing catastrophic values quite often now. Indeed, a, couple, um, a week or two ago, we had a day that was defined as catastrophic, mm. which at work was a little bit stressful with people having to decide where they were going to go and what they were going to do. And Yeah, exactly. And so, um, but I think uh, these 100 plus ratings of catastrophic are, are really useful because it does give us a better idea of uh, where the fire is going and what, what's happening, um, you know, and well, not where the fire, what's going to happen in terms of fire on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and and can really highlight uh, the consequences of what might happen with fires at certain times. Um, so yeah, so really interesting um, studies there uh, from CSIRO, and and you know they're going to continue to do the fire research um, now to see see what's going to happen. Uh, but of course, looking in the past can also help us out too uh, to see how fires occurred um, not just in the past ten years ago but the past hundreds of years ago. They can indeed, and uh, we can actually use evidence from ancient fires to help us learn about other conditions on earth a very, very long time ago. Uh, at first, if you think of charcoal or soot, do you think it would be a very useful indicator of what was happening in the past? Or is it a sort of black, sooty, squishy stuff that you can squiggle on people's faces with when they're not looking? Well, I would have thought that, you know, after the fire comes through, all charcoal is pretty much the same. It's just carbon that's been left behind and he's got a whole bunch of carbon there. Well, you'd think so. In terms of what it's made of, it definitely is carbon and, and that's pretty stock standard. Uh, but when plants are charged by, charred by fire, lots of their fine anatomical details actually aren't lost. If you stand on them and squish them, they are. But, <laughs> yeah. but they'll maintain their shape, they'll maintain the patterns on their bark and they can be used uh charcoal can be used to help scientists gleam a lot of information about the past including ancient oxygen levels so as we mentioned before very briefly you need three things to make a fire it's often called the fire triangle you need heat and fuel and oxygen and we often when we're talking about catastrophic fire days we look at temperature because that's something that varies a lot day to day but we often forget about the oxygen apart from when you want to put a fire out you put a fire blanket on it to lock off the oxygen i guess yeah uh you 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 might have heard people talk about carbon dioxide levels varying a lot in the earth's history and the fact that carbon dioxide is increasing recently but oxygen levels have also varied greatly over the history of the earth and looking at uh, the amount of charcoal and different types of charcoal uh, in records in the ground can give us an indication of how hot the fire burned and how much oxygen you would need in the atmosphere to make that sort of fire. Okay, because so, oxygen in the air at the moment, because the air is mainly nitrogen, it's about it 70% nitrogen. It's about 20, 21% oxygen and at 21% the moment. oxygen, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Way, 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 way back before there were plants, there was just about no oxygen in the atmosphere at all. Yeah. But over the last sort of couple of hundred million years, we've had quite a variation in oxygen, about 300 
600 or 300? 300 million years ago, there was a big jump in oxygen levels, and oxygen levels were around 30%, wow. which is significantly more than now. At other yeah. times, they've been down around 16%. Okay. And that has a huge impact on how well things burn. If you've got oxygen levels up around 30%, even wet material burns quite happily, whereas when you've got oxygen levels as low as 16%, it's very hard to light fires at all. So we can look at uh, these ancient bits of ash and, and coal and char to help tell, uh, give us information about what oxygen levels were like in the past. So here we go. About 400 million years ago, oxygen levels were really, really low. But then around 30 million years after that, so from oh, 383 to 300 million years ago, we had a huge increase in oxygen because we started to get massive forests growing on land. Okay. That let us have really big, creepy-looking insects, but it also let us have much more intense fires. So there you go. Very interesting. Well, that leads us nicely into a new segment that we're starting on Fuzzy Logic called Do Try This at Home, where you can do your own little science experiments. And today's science experiment is looking at an invisible fire extinguisher and uh, how playing with the oxygen in a fire can help put it out. So let's have a listen. Experiment. Discover. Explore science. Do try this at home. On Fuzzy Logic. Hi, Broderick here with today's Do Try This at Home experiment here on Fuzzy Logic. Today we're going to be creating your very own invisible fire extinguisher. To do today's experiment, you'll need some bicarbonate soda, which you can normally find in the cooking aisle down the shops. You'll also need some vinegar. White vinegar's fine. You don't need the fancy balsamic stuff for this experiment. You're not going to eat it. And white vinegar actually works better. You'll need a container to pour this into. And to test out your invisible fire extinguisher, you'll also need a candle and a lighter or some matches. Now, because this experiment does involve fire, if there's any young kids out there that are trying it, make sure you get an older person to watch you as you try it out. Alright, let's start the experiment. First thing you're going to do is take the bicarbonate soda and put about one, maybe two teaspoons into the bottom of your container. Now that should cover the bottom nicely. Next, we're going to take the white vinegar and pour just a little bit into the bottom of your container on top of the bicarbonate soda. And I want you to listen to what happens. Can you hear that fizzing? That's the bubbles. And what's happening is the vinegar is reacting with the bicarbonate soda. Now, vinegar is something called an acid. And that reacts with the bicarbonate soda, which is a base, and it produces carbon dioxide gas. Now, the interesting thing about carbon dioxide gas is it's actually heavier than air. So, while it bubbles away in your container, it actually isn't disappearing. It's sitting right there inside your container. But because carbon dioxide gas is also invisible... You can't see it, but I promise you, it's sitting right there in your container. And to test whether it's there or not, we're going to see if we can put out a flame. So, that means our next step is to light up our candle. So grab your match or your lighter and light up your candle. 
Alright, I've got mine alight. And now I'm going to gently pour what's in my container over the candle. But I'm not going to pour the liquid vinegar that's down the bottom. What I'm going to pour is the carbon dioxide gas. And there it is. My flame has gone out because I've poured carbon dioxide all over it. Now, you have to try this at home to see how amazing it is. It almost looks like magic when the flame just disappears. But the real question is, why does carbon dioxide make our flame disappear? Well, to explain this, I'm going to need to explore the fire triangle. The fire triangle is what helps all fires start and keep going. There's three things you need to make the triangle. You need heat, you need fuel, and you need oxygen to make a fire. Now, in this case on my candle, I had the fuel from my candle wax and the heat from the match or the light that you use to start the fire and oxygen in the air around me. But when I poured the carbon dioxide over the top, that pushed all the oxygen away because carbon dioxide is heavier than oxygen. And as it pushed the oxygen away, it broke down the fire triangle, which meant my fire went out. Carbon dioxide is actually used in some fire extinguishers to put out real big fires. It's often used around computers and other sensitive equipment like that because the carbon dioxide will put out the fire without doing too much damage to what's around it. By breaking up that fire triangle, the carbon dioxide extinguishers stop the fire really quickly. Firefighters also use a similar technique to put out fires in big mines or places where they can't quite reach. Except in this case, they'll often use liquid nitrogen to put it out because the liquid nitrogen changes to nitrogen gas and this pushes out the oxygen and the fire goes out. So there you have it. That's your very own invisible fire extinguisher that you can try at home. You just need white vinegar, bicarbonate soda, mix them together and you'll make your carbon dioxide gas to put out that flame. Why don't you give it a go? And if you do try the experiment, why not take a photo or a video and post it on the Fuzzy Logic Facebook? My name's Broderick. Thanks for listening to Do Try This at Home, here on Fuzzy Logic. G'day, I'm Dr. Carl Kuliski. Now, you might know me from TV shows like Quantum Sunrise Sleep Geeks, radio shows like Triple J, Up All Night on the BBC, books like Science is Golden, Never Mind the Bullocks, Dinosaurs Aren't Dead, and of course, I recommend that you get your science from me, but when you can't, or in addition, tune into the fabulous Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM, Sundays, 11.30. Remember, the universe depends on it. That's right, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM here in Canberra. And today it's Broderick and Alice with you talking about fire and the science behind it. And we've only got a few minutes left, but we just wanted to share a couple more stories with you. One of these stories actually comes out of Australia, where a little pill is helping the firefighting effort. And it's not a little pill being thrown on the fire or anything like that. It's actually for the firefighters. Um, it's happening in Victoria, where the CFA is trialling um, this little pill. And it's called the Equivital EQO2 Life Monitor Capsule. 
It's basically a plastic-coated pill, and it contains a thermometer and a small transmitter. And what it's measuring is the firefighter's core body temperatures. Because um, it's really important that the firefighters are being looked after and they're not overworked, under-stressed, or uh, under-stressed? Un- they're actually under-stressed. Under too much stress. Under too much stress, <laughs> thank you. Um, while they're out there. And so they can, by monitoring their core temperature, they can help rotate fires in and out of the f- rotate firefighters in and out of the fire to help fight it as best as possible. And so what happens with this little pill is that core temperature measurements are fed through the thermometer into the transmitter to a device which is worn on the firefighter's chest, and this uh, device also collects their skin temperature, heart and respiration rate data, and this is all sent to an external computer. And so... What it means is that the CFA can then monitor the firefighters uh, much better uh, than previous measurements which were used, which were measured via the ear, and that was found to be ineffective. The interesting thing is that firefighters can, uh, uh, their core temperature can range very hugely. Um, This device has been tested at temperatures from minus 3 to 124 degrees Celsius, which is pretty crazy. Um, And, uh, you know, heat-stressed firefighters um, aren't useful at all. Uh, And by using this, they can better monitor whether firefighters are heat-stressed or not uh, and help them hydrate better using things like wet towels to the arms, submerging their arms in water or placing ice packs under their armpits Mm. to help them cool down uh, so they know what's going on. So amazing little device. And interestingly, this device was recently used by skydiver Felix Baumgartner in his big dive, um, the world record jump from above the earth earlier last year. Multi-use. So that's right. And if you are wondering, the pill is uh, naturally expelled from the body (laughs) after a couple of days. So no big worry there. Well, firefighting is very exhausting. I have some friends who work for Parks and Wildlife in Tasmania who do firefighting in the summer, and it's one of the most physically draining things to be climbing mountains, running around when it's very, very hot in very heavy gear and fighting fires. It's incredibly hard work, so it is important that we look after our firefighters really, really well. Definitely, and especially when, as it is at the moment, there's fires just happening all over the place. Uh, so it can be absolutely crazy. Uh, now, just to finish off, Alice, quickly, you've got some info about some of the very first fires. Well, not some of the very first fires, but the very, very first fires that were used in a controlled way by people. Ah. So if you imagine a campfire, we all love going out camping, sitting around. There's nothing quite like it. How long do you reckon people might have been lighting campfires for the purposes of cooking and keeping warm for? Oh, I reckon at least 50,000 years ago. Try an awful, awful, awful lot longer than that. It turns out that scientists think that the oldest example of fires used by people in a controlled fashion have been occurring for over a million years. Wow. There's a cave uh, in South Africa called the Wonderwork Cave. You may pronounce it differently if you're from South Africa, but we'll (laughs) give that a crack here. We'll call it the Wonderwork Cave where there are records of the oldest known uh, human habitation and the oldest known campfires, which by looking at uh, radioactive elements that decay over time when they're exposed uh, to the air, scientists have figured out that it's around about a million years old. So imagine the sort of stories that would have been told around that campfire over the last million years. Pretty darn good. Definitely, definitely. Well, that's been a fantastic 
range of fire stories today from a million years ago right up to present day fire. I hope you've enjoyed going through some of the fire science with us today, listeners. And thanks very much for joining me today, Alice. Thanks for having me, Brock. It's been great that you can share some of your knowledge on fires and some of the different fires around Australia. If you did enjoy today's episode, you can download the podcast from iTunes. And as always, jump on Facebook and like us there if you do have anything to share with us. Thanks very much, listeners, and we'll see you again or hear you again or you can hear us next Sunday right here on Fuzzy Logic.